Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 4th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Government ministers got back to work early this year with the first cabinet meeting yesterday dominated by Brexit and putting in place contingency plans in the event of the UK leaving the EU without an agreement on the terms of the divorce. The fears of a crisis which could see the return of a hard border on the island of Ireland and the untold consequences that would follow come ironically as we discover that the government ran a budget surplus last year. It's the first time since 2006 that this country has not been in the red but as the conversation about balancing the books finally comes to an end the headlines this morning tell us that we don't need to worry about anybody going hungry as a result of Brexit. So what do we need to worry about? Michael Brennan, political editor with the Sunday Business Post joins us now. Good morning, Michael. Happy New Year to you and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. The Taoiseach's reassurance about the supply of foodstuffs in a food exporting country is grand, but the recent experience of more than a decade of austerity has taught us that an adequate supply of food doesn't mean we don't face hair shirt budgets, tightening our belts and hardship, but I suppose that's exactly what the government will hope to avoid. That's right, Michael. And look, um, uh, many happy returns to yourself and your listeners. There was a slightly comical uh, comment by the Taoiseach yesterday, some light relief where he did talk about the food supplies. And he mentioned that we're a food producing nation. We have plenty of it, thankfully. But pre-packed foods from England uh, could be in difficulty. And he said he mentioned specifically the example of those sort of uh, food trays from Marks and Spencer's. So, uh, you know, anyone who, who really likes that kind of stuff maybe stock up now just in case uh, things don't work out on March the 29th. But you mentioned the, the austerity years we've gone through. The big fear is that we're going to get thrown back I- into a recession through no fault or action of our own by Brexit. And I think that's what's exercising government and why 
they are not making as much of a deal about balancing the budget as they as they may have otherwise, because they know if things go wrong in the next two or three months, then we're soon going to be in very big difficulty again. Yeah, and uh, there's some difficulties uh, that will be harder to face up to than others, uh, whilst we may be able to produce ready-made meals here instead of importing British ones, uh, there could be problems with medicines uh, and uh, the need to stockpile medication. That's right, and, and that's what the Taoiseach said uh, yesterday that the Cabinet discussed, that they are creating those stockpiles. He did point out that you know one of the things that kept us going through the recession was the huge presence of, of multinationals here, and we have 10 of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. So that does make it a bit mm. easier that there, that there are supplies of drugs and medicines actually being made on, on this uh, island. It does but if they're the drugs yeah, you're looking for. If they're not the drugs you're looking for, and even if we stockpile them, there's only a certain shelf life. That's right. So it's a, you know, it, it's, it's a sign of how interconnected the world is today, mm. uh, where people are, are, are buying products that are coming from all over the globe and are, are often made with products from all over the globe. So it's a very tricky issue. But the government don't seem to be as worried as the British government who are, have been talking about buying up fridges and so on mm. because they feel they will need an even greater stockpile because obviously they could potentially be shut out of the EU market or find it very difficult. Mm. Uh, and possibly putting uh, electricity generators uh, in uh, the waterways to supply power to the north of Ireland. Yeah, it's it's astonishing, you know, it, to some extent to hear of, of some of the, the British plans. You know, there was a mention in The Guardian today of, of having extra police and, and army troops. Uh, a thousand them, extra, isn't it? Yes, to, mm. to bring them to the north in case the place erupts if, uh, if there's Brexit and a hard border goes back in. And, you know... Th- at this late stage, you're hearing all these kind of almost crazy sound, sounding ideas, but it does show, it just shows how, how serious things are if the British Parliament doesn't decide to vote for that draft withdrawal treaty. And we have uh, the next deadline. Uh, deadlines have come and gone, uh, but the next li- deadline is uh, the 21st of January when an agreement must be reached by the British if uh, there's uh, to be a deal at all by the 31st of March. Of course, all of these deadlines can be pushed out. They can. I think we're looking at two things at the moment. One is, does the government here and the other EU countries relax their stance to give another major concession to British Prime Minister Theresa May and there's no sign of that at the moment. The the conversation between the Chief and Angela Merkel yesterday on the phone was about how do we maybe give them some assurances that don't really mean very much but we stick to the deal. And the second thing to Brexit is to see Side. And I suppose that's the that's the big the big uh, question mark at the moment. We don't we don't know if if realization is dawning that this is what they're being offered and this is the best they'll get. The only other out they have is to postpone effectively their exit date, that March 29th mm. exit from the EU, and try and negotiate something over a couple of months. But you know there, there's been no. Certainly no declaration by the British government that they're going to do that just yet. But even if they were to do that, by how long? Because uh, there's uh, elections in May and if Europe uh, is 27 countries instead of 28 and the United Kingdom isn't a member of the European Union, they won't be entitled to take seats in the European Parliament. 
you're absolutely right, Michael. Um, I think the feeling is, you know, for a long time we heard we must get this done by March the 29th because you know the countries won't want to interfere with the elections. Um, but th- there is a sense that if the choices between has, has British uh, MEPs later or a terrible hard Brexit, well, we'll take the the messy European Parliament. So I think I think if punch would just extend it out and and worry about you know trying to reconfigure Parliament later. Okay, uh, we are experiencing some problems on the line. I'm not sure if that can be uh, improved at your end, Michael. Uh, we'll try to stay with it for a, a little bit longer because uh, all of this could uh, impact uh, and very much so on the working of Parliament in uh, this country because the government was talking about 45 pieces of legislation uh, which it, it proposed uh, getting uh, through the Parliament uh, before March, uh, which would leave little room for little else. That's right, and the Taoiseach has said that effectively they're con- going to condense those 45 different actions and legislative measures into four bills, which is a lot more manageable, and they're not going to board until March, the start of March, because his pointless passing all this legislation all for, for January and a, a, go- a good deal Mm. I'm, I'm losing you there, Michael. I'm not sure. Uh, the reception seems to be uh, failing us uh, this morning. I'm not sure if uh, we can improve on that. Uh, but uh, just uh, in terms of all of that, uh, there could be little other business done in this country before March, uh, and that would uh, lead uh, to a, a lot of instability here and bring back uh, some of uh, the questions, I suppose, that we were asking about the stability of the government uh, before the Christmas break. Uh, that seemed to have been shored up because of Fianna Fáil saying that it would extend the confidence and supply agreement by a, a year. Uh, but if uh, the country isn't working because of uh, the political st- instability here or internationally, uh, it's hardly uh, a- a- any different, is it? It's still the same sort of problem. It is. It's, it's a hard one to call. Does, for example, Fianna Fáil leader Michal Martin change his stance if, if we get huge Brexit instability? Does he decide that, look, at well, we've, we've gone through that process now. We need a new government to steer us through. It's hard to know, but he says that he is going to stick for the next year and then, and then see, after, see after that. Mm. So that's really all we know. You know, the Taoiseach himself even admitted yesterday what's going to happen with the next couple of weeks with British MPs. So, so the system at the moment is, is only looking at the date of perhaps for a vote in the House of Commons and, and that that's almost as far as they can see ahead at the moment. Okay, and uh, we come out of a, a year that uh, was dogged by controversy surrounding justice and policing. A, another year uh, which uh, had a, a lot of controversy uh, relating uh, to Angarda Siakana uh, to a large degree uh, that was settled. But we start the year with uh, the suspension of a senior guard commissioner, one of uh, the newspapers uh, naming uh, the individual. And uh, apart uh, from the commissioner himself, Drew Harris, it's hard to to get more senior than this particular officer? Yeah, I, I don't know the, the details of this particular case, but it has been noticeable, Drew Harris, the new commissioner, seems to be taking 
quite uh, decisive action in regard to some cases. Um, you may even have noticed in parts of the country there are new Garda recruits who were put out on the streets over Christmas, which was something that wouldn't have happened before. I'm told they usually have got the, the Christmas off. Mm. Um, but in regard to discipline, that was a problem that the Disclosures Tribunal said there was no effective discipline system in, in Angarda Shirkona and it needed to be so I suppose you're starting to see some disciplinary actions. The only difficulty is the Garda system is so clunky. You often have someone put on, on disciplinary measures and they go to the High Court and 10 years later there's an outcome to the case. So it's, it's too early to say, well, you know, will, will a process result in, in any change? But there does seem to be certainly an attempt to, uh, to take proceedings or allegations, whereas you know, maybe in the past things moved at a slightly slower pace. All right. Uh, and of course, last year was dominated by the debate on uh, abortion. Uh, we start uh, the year with uh, abortion uh, being uh, available legally, at least in this country, but not in all of the maternity services as was expected, but in fact in fewer than was expected and with protests taking place outside of GP clinics in Galway. That's right. Uh, it, it shows, you know, this very difficult issue in 2018 and the introduction of it was a, an enormous rush. I think um, it's actually almost surprising that the government managed uh, to get uh, some GP surgeries who were in a position um, a position to meet the deadline then set of, of January. But the fact there are protests and so on just shows again, you know, for some people this is a very uh, personal and and, uh, and, and, and heated issue. But Effectively, politically, the, the referendum has happened. The mm. legislation has been passed, and and we're very much into into the of of uh, of it being rolled out. All right, and uh, we will undoubtedly vote a more referenda this year. The European elections, as we already mentioned, local elections, possibly a, a general election here, and uh, there's even the prospect of a, a general election in uh, the UK. That's right. Yes, you know, because of the instability there and Brexit being kind of rule out that, I, I think certainly a general election in the UK more likely than, than one here. So um, we, we find out soon enough there or perhaps an, a second Brexit referendum. But it is just fingers crossed that, that I suppose the, the pain that people have gone through here in the last 10 years in terms of all the, the changes their lives and some very deep ones that uh, we are not thrown back into that sort of uh, economic morass again. It's mm-hmm. recognise the, the threat that Brexit poses. All right, Michael, we'll leave there and uh, thanks for joining us. Happy New Year, as I said at uh, the outset, and thanks as well uh, for sticking with us uh, through uh, the technical problems we were having uh, this morning uh, and uh, for that analysis. And uh, apologies to people listening to us uh, this morning as well for the quality of the line. Michael Brennan, political editor with the Sunday Business Post. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, many of us will make uh, New Year's resolutions. It seems uh, that in the last 20 years, 
years, uh, people resolved to give up smoking and some did so successfully. In fact, 20 years ago, a third of the country were smoking. Today, just one fifth of uh, the population are smokers. Let's talk about this with Dr. Pat Durley, who's uh, the chairperson of Ash Ireland Council of uh, the Irish Heart Foundation. Good morning to you, Dr. Durley, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Although there's been a significant reduction in the number of smokers, I suppose, on the other hand, uh, there continues to be a significant number of people who smoke in this country. Uh, that's true, yes. Uh, and uh, Ash Ireland would not, uh, is not content with that situation, I must say. Although we have made reasonably good progress over the last um, 12 years or so since the introduction of the smoking ban. But um, I think we need to look at uh, perhaps some... Uh, new measures, as well as intensifying some of the, the measures we're already implementing uh, in order to get to the um, uh, Department of Health objective of uh, 5% or less uh, uh, people smoking uh, by the year 2025. It's, un- it's unlikely we'll actually uh, achieve that, I think, but I think nonetheless, I think we need to uh, do our best. We probably will mm. achieve it with uh, children. Um, so, as I say, I think it's a com- uh, probably a combination of uh, intensifying some of the existing measures and um, that we know are effective and uh, identifying some new measures. Right. Uh, would you be disappointed uh, by that uh, admission that it, it may not be achieved because uh, the time frame set out for that target was a 12-year time frame, wasn't it? Uh, this is the Tobacco-Free Ireland programme which right, ran from yeah. 2013 up to 25. Yes, I, I think, um, I suppose when the, uh, when that particular objective was, uh, was set out, I think, you know, we didn't really know mm. what the, what the, um, chances were of achieving it fully. But I, I think you've got to do that anyway. You know, you've got to set yourself ambitious targets, and that's what the Department of Health did. But, um, I think it, it should be an incentive to us, I think, now to, to, um, to work harder to achieve that objective. So, for example, if you look at the single most effective measure, in relation to uh, tobacco, it is tobacco taxation, without a doubt. And we've had, you know, good increases there over, over the last number mm. of years. But we would like to see, uh, I mean, James Riley talked at one stage when he was Minister of um, uh, having uh, a 20-pack cost uh, 20 euro. And is that what you mean um, by new initiatives uh, to uh, increase taxes, uh, something that we've already been doing, but to increase them further? Uh, yes. Yeah, in a, a, a sort of radical way that James mm. Riley mentioned. Um, I mean, we are recognised as leaders in, in that area uh, around the world, but there are other uh, other um, uh, measures that, uh, for example, uh, smoke-free spaces, which Ash Ireland is um, promoting. Um, we're working with colleges around the country, uh, universities, and they are actually uh, many of the student staff and. Um, uh, lecturers around the country have voted for smoke-free campuses and that sends a message to people and especially to young people Mm. um, you know because they model their behaviour on the the behaviour of adults and uh, so for example it also helps people make the healthy choice because um, if you're on a university campus and you want to smoke you may have to walk uh, up to the blue line which might be quite some distance Mm. so some people will say they're not going to bother. But therein lies and, possibly one of the most worrying aspects of uh, the most recent data because whilst uh, one in five of us smoke in this country, one in three between 25 and 34 are smoking. That's true, yes. And I mean, uh, the 20, 
the, yeah, the 25 to 35 age group are the, the heaviest smokers and indeed some of the, some of the uh, males mm. uh, in that group uh, smoke for all your own in the mistaken belief that it's safer and of course it's not. But having said that, if you look at the, the very younger uh, age groups, um, 12, 13 and 14, they are less likely with each successive co- cohort of children each year, they are less likely to smoke. So that you know bodes well for the future. So what we have to look, we have to look at the uh, that particular age, twenty five to thirty four age group. And we also have to look at uh, this problem on a socioeconomic basis because mm. those who are uh, in the poorest, you know, the uh, poorest and most deprived areas, are far more likely to smoke twice as likely to smoke as those in the better off areas mm. and of course more far more likely to die uh, from the smoke. And does that not call into question the policy of increasing taxation? Does price make a difference? Uh, those who can least afford to smoke tend to smoke more frequently. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an argument we have to face and some people would say uh, that is the case but, you know, to, uh, as far as Ash Ireland is concerned, public health comes first and you know, if you look at, well, we're not economists, obviously, but if you look at uh, approaches to uh, lifting people out of poverty, uh, I don't think uh, cheap tobacco is one of them. There are many uh, options that government has to help uh, people, uh, you know, have better opportunities in life. I think that's the, the way to look at that. And so we would say from that point of view that from a public health point of view, mm. that uh, it is a progressive measure. Okay, but uh, perhaps uh, that could be helped. I mean, if you're going to increase the price and they just end up paying more money for the same amount of cigarettes because uh, it's a policy that isn't impacting in the way that you'd hoped, uh, should there be an alternative approach taken to it uh, and to say, look, we... Oh, no, pre- but, it, but it does actually impact. It, it does impact, especially on uh, children, Mm. But I mean, as you said, people in disadvantaged areas tend to smoke more and die more frequently. That's right, yes. Mm. And I think, you know, uh, I think what I'm saying is that, you know, government has plenty of options economically to help those people. Mm. So uh, that's what should be put in place, I think. Well, Um, would it be an idea to offer them free vaping? Or, or very, uh, you know, put that against very, very expensive cigarettes, 20 euro a pack, uh, or free vaping. Well, I think that kind of initiative, uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily go for free vaping. I think uh, nicotine replacement has a better track record, mm. and Ash Ireland has campaigned uh, for lower VAT rates on um, uh, nicotine replacement products. Mm. Uh, I, I, and indeed, I if you have a medical card, if you have a medical mm. card, uh, my understanding is you 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 uh, can get a course of uh, nicotine replacement uh, for twelve weeks uh, free, and that's a reasonable period. Mm. You know, most people do need about twelve weeks to, um, and especially for that support to get through the difficult cravings. You know, over that mm. period. But uh, outside, outside of uh, medical cards, yeah. I, I think replacement, uh, regardless of what sort it is, uh, whether it's uh, the chewing gum or the patches or the vaping or whatever it is, uh, it tends to cost in around the same price as it does to actually smoke. Uh, so does that make sense in, in your mind? Well, I think that the reality is that smoking, you know, if you, uh, if you smoke tw- a 20-pack a day, you're talking about €4,000 a year. Mm. So, like, the cost of smoking is far higher. But if you sm- smoke €20 no, euro no, no, no. A, a day and try to give up, uh, undoubtedly, 
uh, people are, are trying to profiteer off that and uh, take your addiction into account and know that they can get €4,000 off you for patches, for gum, for vaping, for whatever it is. Uh, should that uh, be tackled in some way so that people would be encouraged to, to take alternatives? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I'm not sure what the point there is. The, the, the point is that the point I'd make is that smoking is far more expensive. Far more expensive. And the point I'm making is I don't think it have, is. I, th- I think it's about the same price, Pat. I mean, I, I, I think a smoker will, will, will tell you that if they go to nicotine patches or something, they'll end up spending in around the same time, uh, certainly at the beginning, and over time you'll reduce uh, the amount of nicotine. But uh, there's a concerted effort from these companies uh, to charge you what you're already paying because you feel that you can uh, afford that amount, be it an ex- albeit an exorbitant amount. Well, look, yes, okay, I, I take that point. That's something we should consider. I think, you know, if we're talking about radical measures, yes. Um, we we have had discussions with the Department of Health about this. Um, so far, we've gone as far as, you know, continuing to lobby, and it's difficult. Uh, we haven't had any success uh, in terms of the VAT. But, yeah, I think that's, that is an option to look at uh, in terms of any radical measure. Mm. Um, and uh, as I say, it would be nicotine replacement. Uh, e-cigarettes have their place, they are an option, but they would not be the first option, I think. Mm. But a, a better option, perhaps? Uh, sorry? Uh, perhaps better. a better option than smoking? Uh, for some people. For some people it would be, yeah. yeah. Mm. But I think I think the issue there really is that people need to understand uh, the benefits and the disadvantages of each type of... Uh, support that uh, is available. You know, there is a drug called Varenicline, uh, which is on prescription. That might discourage some people. Even nicotine replacement, which has a good track record. And for those, like, who've tried everything and, you know, uh, understand that vaping may not be without risk, there are a lot of concerns. I'm not saying the concerns have been proven. Mm. But, you know, once you know that, you know, and you decide vaping is for you, well, then... Try and uh, try and uh, not become uh, addicted to two forms of nicotine. Mm, yeah, know, and that quite and, often is the case. Yeah, uh, and you see, you see people literally carrying that stick around their neck, as uh, the case may be. But we're in a, yeah. a, a crucial mean, period they, they, for anybody they may well who wants. Need it for, for, mm. Sure, sure, yeah, and they may well need that for for the twelve weeks, you know. But mm. after that, they should begin to question whether they're just becoming addicted to the two forms of tobacco or, or nicotine, I should say. All right. Well, we're in a, a crucial period, I, I think, uh, for smokers who wish to quit. Uh, and I think most smokers do wish to quit. Uh, but there's a lot of smokers who are actually considering it uh, at the moment in the first week of January. It's usually the case, at least. Uh, and as the days go by, uh, it can be put on the long finger and then long fingered uh, out of somebody's mind. So for anybody who has been thinking about it, going into the weekend can be a difficult thing. Would you suggest they uh, try it today, tomorrow or wait until maybe midweek next week? Or, or what would you suggest to them? Should they be calling the HSE helpline or uh, going to see their doctor, as you said, to, to get a prescription? Well, there are a lot of options now. They're, they're very good options compared to what was available a few years ago. So, uh, I mean... Even telling friends may help you. Uh, I think the one mistake uh, a lot of smokers make is not to get some support. Uh, the HSE, for example, provide a very good service. Uh, you can go online or you can go on the Facebook page where smokers uh, support each other to quit and stay quit. Uh, HSE will help you to make a quit plan and they'll support you no matter what method you want to use, e-cigarettes or whatever. Um, 
and then uh, there are there are the drugs that we mentioned already there uh, they each of those uh, measures can uh, increase your chances can double your chances of, of quitting successfully so uh, there are lots of options uh, for for people and the support of friends and family is is probably more likely to be forthcoming around this time you know so um all of those options are available to people to quit smoking Okay, listen, we leave it there for the moment and if anybody is considering giving up, uh, we wish them good luck with it and thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Dr. Pat Durley, the chairperson of Ash Ireland Council of uh, the Irish Heart Foundation. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk once again about France's Blacks Bill, which will effectively ban imports from Israeli-occupied territories in Palestine. It passed through the Senate with the support of opposition parties. It will go to the Dáil with perhaps the support of some independent ministers. It'll be opposed by Fine Gael, as we've been hearing, because of the advice from the Attorney General, but will be introduced to the doll by Fianna Fáil's Niall Collins, who's his party's spokesperson on foreign affairs and trade and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Niall Collins, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Fianna Fáil wasn't always convinced of the merits of this bill. Um, no, I wouldn't say that either. Um, we There came a point in time when we had to take a position on the bill um, as you do with any particular bill when it comes um, before the parties in the Oireachtas, in either the Dáil or the Shannon. So we hadn't expressed any view one way or another in relation to it. And um, it, came, it came up then. It, it was due in January of last year, mm. uh, early in the year. And um, at that point in time, the tarnished Simon Coveney asked Francis Black, which he withdrew for a number of months because he was working on um, a number of initiatives, as he described it, in the Middle East, and he wanted a bit of time and space. And he said to her, he requested of her, which he withdrew because he, he didn't want that clouding uh, some of his work, which she agreed to do at the time, and uh, she gave him six months. So six months rolled on, and it came up for a decision in the Senate, and uh, it was the unanimous decision of the Fianna Fáil front bench and of the Fianna Fáil party to, to support the bill. There was absolutely no issue mm. with it. We have actually a long history going back to the, the time of uh, Brian Lenehan Sr. when he was uh, tarnished then at the time in Minister for Foreign Affairs in supporting the two-state solution, in supporting uh, the Palestinian people and recognising um, the difficulty and, and the struggle that they face every day in relation to the proliferation of um, illegal settlements being developed by mm. Israelis in their territories. Okay, well, the reason I said you weren't always convinced of uh, the merits of it is because it wasn't always clear that Fianna Fáil would support uh, the bill. Uh, you faced uh, intensive lobbying, most famously from Roger Waters, of course. Uh, well, I didn't meet Rogers Waters. I don't know who Roger Waters is, but do you not? It's no more than any. It's no more than any other bill, um, Michael. Um, TDs. We get lobbied every day of the week. Uh, there's a whole lobbying industry around um, legislation and public policy, as you know. And um, th- this bill, uh, no different to any other bill, th- there's a lot of interest in it. Um, yeah, well, I think anybody who's interested in uh, Palestinian rights and uh, Israeli opposition uh, would have heard the name Roger Waters, apart from music fans, but I suppose that's neither here or there. But uh, in coming to your decision, uh, just to put into context how important a statement 
from even a small state like Ireland is internationally. Fianna Fáil was lobbied by the American State Department, the American Embassy in Dublin and the Israeli Embassy. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, as I say, be, being lobbied isn't, isn't a new phenomenon. W- wouldn't be anything that uh, w- w- would unduly concern me or, or indeed influence me one way or another. I suppose we, we all, we, we listen. Our job is to try and inform ourselves as best we can, mm. uh, to listen to the arguments and to look at the merits of any piece of legislation that's before you. But what did the Americans say to you? Well, the, the Americans have their position in relation to it. Um, they, they just, I suppose, look, a lot of these conversations go on in private, so I'm not going to get into the, the, the who said what, mm. when and where, but, but I, I suppose you've captured it right in saying that they, they, lobbied, uh, they lobbied us against the bill, uh, they lobbied us not to support the bill. But we took a very informed decision. Um, a, lot of our, a lot of our TDs, are, are well versed in the issues. I went there myself last uh, June, in late June, mm. with my colleague Deputy Billy Kelleher. We spent a number of days there where we met with both sides, um, in fairness to us. Uh, we constructed our, our tour there uh, where we took on board the views of everybody. We met with, with the Israelis and with Palestinians. We, <coughs> we toured into the West Bank, Ramallah, Hebron. Uh, we visited um, settlements. Uh, in the disputed territories, we saw the impact of the evictions. Uh, we heard from people uh, who were former, for example, former IDF, Israeli Defence Forces mm. elites, uh, who now um, who now uh, have an organisation. When, when you say disputed territories, uh, is that how you see these areas, uh, or do you see them as occupied territories? Sorry, occupied territories. Okay, yeah, no, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, suppose, I, mean, I mean, I think I, you'd yeah. expect the Americans or the Israelis to describe yeah. them as disputed territories. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, I suppose the language here can confuse us sometimes, but yeah, look, I mean, under international law, they're they're deemed mm-hmm. as, as illegal occupied territories, and uh, you know, depending, you know, you get different descriptions. Uh, the Palestinians will tell you their land is stolen, and it's hard to disagree with that. So the the, the issue here for us is. Um, we had to take a position on the bill, and the position is that uh, we agree um, that the bill will send out a powerful message, uh, a statement. In practical terms and in effect, uh, it, it'll, uh, it won't have a huge uh, impact in terms of uh, anything physical. Uh, in terms uh, of trade? Certainly will, it's, been, it's been offered as sending out a powerful statement of solidarity uh, so, you accept, Irish people. so you accept the advice of the Attorney General that it's not actually enforceable, it won't have any real impact? Well, look, I mean, the Attorney General, and I suppose this is where the parties differ, um, the, the, the Attorney General to the government is saying that, um, you know, trade policy is an EU competence and that, that Ireland can't determine uh, trade policy uh, itself. So the, the proposer of the bill, uh, Senator Black, um, and a number of the organisations who are supporting her in advancing the bill have uh, sourced their own uh, legal opinions, uh, a number of them, including former Attorney General Michael McDowell, who have offered um, uh, contrary opinions in relation to it. And uh, we have reviewed all of those. Our own legal people have reviewed all of those. And, you know, we, we've taken our position uh, on it that we feel we can support the bill. And uh, it's up to the government uh, to make their decision on it, and, and that's their prerogative also. Mm. So you, the, the you believe bill, that the bill will be legally sound. Uh, that, that, that's the argument you're making there. But do you believe that it is enforceable? Because uh, I, I think you said a moment ago that it won't actually have any real impact on trade. Well, I, I think it will be enforceable because uh, um, I think um, really 
there, there, it has struck me quite forcibly mm. the um, the amount of um, solidarity and the amount of people uh, across the Irish public who are very clued into this particular issue. Okay, well, I, and, I, I'm not actually clued into what. Yeah, but, but it, well, no, I'm not ter- actually. If I could just ask you, but if yeah. I could ask you a question, uh, I, I'm not actually clued into what goods come from uh, 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 Israeli-occupied settlements in Palestine. Uh, um, t- name one and I won't buy it. Uh, dates. Dates? Um, yeah. All some, dates. Some, some types of herbs, um, some, types of, um, some types of cosmetics. So do I, but, but, but be, can you be specific? Do I stop buying dates altogether or all herbs or all cosmetics? Uh, no, you don't, of course, because not, yeah. all, of them, not all of them originate um, from, um, from either product are, are from manufacturing mm. within uh, the illegal occupied territories. Mm. And that is the point here, that yeah. it's a ban on the sale of goods and services which originate from illegal occupied territories. Mm. And uh, it's not from anywhere in Israel, it's not from anywhere in no, the Middle East. No, I understand, East. but can, can they be identified in that way? Well, the, 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 the proposer of the bill, Frances Black, she mm. has been challenged in relation to that. And what she, what she has said... And, and I think it's a fair point, is that this will be largely self-policing by the Irish public, that the public uh, will, will be aware of um, and will be made aware of where uh, items and products are sourced from and that it will become illegal. Mm. OK, but it's more likely that the statement uh, that the passing of uh, this legislation would make would uh, be what's uh, important in Absolutely. all Absolutely. It, it look, I mean, it's deemed uh, um, primarily as a statement of solidarity. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's very hard to argue against the bill because, um, you know, we, we have an experience in this country back in, back in our history going back through the years where people were dispossessed of their land. Mm. And this is effectively what's happening, and I've seen it with my own eyes out there. And, um, you know, there, but do we there want to upset no America? I mean, that, that, that seems the most obvious argument here today. Uh, do we want to upset uh, America? Uh, look, I mean, America can't dictate uh, to us what our policy should be, or indeed what, what European policy should be, in my view. This here is about doing the right thing. Uh, there is no light at the mm. end of the tunnel, in my view, having been well, yeah, uh, to uh, the Middle East. American uh, companies uh, dictate our tax policies, don't they? Uh, they don't. We're, we're sovereign in relation to our own tax policies. But can I make this point, Michael? Mm. Um, you know, I, I have been there. I, I have seen it. Yeah. And I think there is no prospect at the moment of any two-state solution, which seems to be uh, the holy grail that everybody seems to be offering in terms of a solution here. Um, because you have the continued expansion, the continued development and the continued proliferation of illegal settlements um, by Israel in the Palestinian, in the Palestinian regions where they're dispossessing people of their land. Uh, the, you know, the whole area is now, the whole of the West Bank is so fragmented in terms of the proliferation of illegal settlements, I can't see how a two-state solution is ever going to be achieved. No. So what you have, and I'm quoting some of the NGOs on the ground here, is you have Israel acting with complete impunity uh, in continuing, as we speak now, to develop illegal settlements on Palestinian lands. And yet, at the same time, we'll say that they want to achieve a two-state solution. So, talk is cheap there. Yeah, I think the last time uh, there was any prospect of a a two-state solution, Bill Clinton was the president of uh, America. And uh, And that's a long time ago. Obviously so. All right, we'll leave there. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. uh, That's Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on Foreign Affairs and Trade, Niall Collins, TD. 
Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. And to all our listeners, Pat, Pat even from our boys, one of those listeners, and he is fed up about Brexit, Michael. Sick listening to it, even though he knows we probably have to talk about it. But he says, March can't come quick enough for him. Mm. Why, what's going to happen then? D-Day, he says. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We could be talking about it next March, for that matter. But he mm. sees, he. what the point he's making is that, are we that much in fear of England, and indeed, say, if Ireland was to leave the EU, that we're talking about food shortages? What planet are these people on, he wants to know? We're not going back to the 1900s here. Uh, do you think that England is going to for one minute, just lie down. Of course, the country will bounce back up again. And he says, it would just sicken you listening to all this conversation when there's real problems in this country. And this is their biggest problem. Mm, I don't know. I suppose the concern is uh, that some of uh, the problems that we have could be compounded and uh, there could be even more problems. Uh, There may be uh, planes uh, that are are left on the ground in the UK, for example, uh, because of aviation, air travel space and all of that sort of stuff. Owen says, should we really be stocking up on our antibiotics, Michael? Or is this just a little bit of scaremongering? There's all this talk of medicines that you're talking about, but is it not a little bit over the top? It's not like the UK is closing down, or is it? Mm. Well, Who wants to know? Yeah, well, if we're not trading with it, yes, you know, it may not be closed down, but it's not open for business. Seamus says that from the very word go, he had a bad feeling about Brexit. And indeed, he did say that to us many a time. And he still has a bad feeling about Mm. it and where Ireland is going to end up. When you hear the cabinet talking about contingency plans and having to rush through so much legislation, Michael, you'd wonder how are they going to achieve this? And should they not have been working on these contingency plans before now? Should they? <laughs> yeah, well, were they not? I think that's the next question. I think there's probably an awful lot that we don't know about. And uh, undoubtedly, there's a lot to be concerned about, but fingers crossed and uh, common sense will prevail. Mary says that everybody is in a flap over Brexit, but will it be like other things that we've got into a flap about and it won't be as bad as everybody is making it? Well, let's hope so. And uh, I think that's what everybody is saying uh, and uh, that there'll be no need for a backstop uh, that there will be an agreement and uh, that uh, there won't be much disruption. Uh, but if that doesn't transpire and there is no deal and uh, the UK crashes out and there is no contingency plans, people will be giving out then, of course, uh, because it really would be a doomsday scenario. Hold that thought for a moment, though. Marie, we're going to go to the phones to hear about uh, a Drogheda man who's uh, the subject of a feature in the Irish Sun newspaper today. Stephen Breen, crime editor with uh, the Sun is on the line and a very good morning to you Stephen and thanks uh, for joining us. Why is it you're writing about Owen McGuire? Yeah we're writing about this individual today because we received some information uh, over Christmas that during a major Garda operation at the halting site in Cement Road last year uh, Garda recovered um, uh, numerous birds that were being used for cockfighting and some of these birds had spikes on their heads, some had uh, spikes strapped to their their um, their, their feet and, and their legs, and it, it really showed that the level 
of brutality that you know this practice was still ongoing you know in, in modern Ireland that was being used we believe by associates of Maguire to to make cash and to make money as part of ongoing criminality that, that was ongoing in the area. Mm. And there were other animals uh, that were of concern as well. Yes, the thing there was, there was the, the guards recovered a, a dead dog at the site, but there was also a, a dog there, with, and it was examined by a, a local vet. And there, there was a dog there that, when it saw um, some of the, the associates of Mabar at the site, you know, it cowered underneath the car. So, if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The dog was absolutely terrified, but the, the, the guards were unable to take the dog because... Once the vet had examined it, it didn't show any um, examples of, of cruelty. You know, there, was, there were no physical injuries or anything. So um, it was just during the raid of this site, you know, things have been very tense in Drahada these last number of months. You know, Owen McGuire himself survived the shooting incident. There have been pipe bombs, um, arson attacks, stabbings, threats being issued, Gardaí on, on high alert. But it was just in, in relation to this site, there were, there were many aspects of criminality being exposed there, you know, Stolen cars, recovered caravans, uh, 273 grand in cash recovered hidden in a roof. So and I think that that's why, uh, because of the criminality that was going on there, the council decided to act uh, and demolish the site. Okay, and Mr. McGuire is in hospital uh, at the moment and has been for some time. Perhaps we can talk about that in a, a moment. But you're also reporting this morning on his hair. 
Yes, yes. I mean, I mean you, you, the, the Criminal Assets Bureau had launched an investigation into um, on McGuire and, and his alleged involvement in criminality. And as part of their investigations, um, they established that he, he owned the two properties in Monaghan and Cavan. But also, you know, here was someone who was unemployed yet had um, the, the, the cash to spend 11 grand on traveling to Turkey for um, a hair transplant. So, and because of the money that was found at the site, you know, there was a, a, a 171 Mercedes also recovered worth 60 grand. There was a Rolex watch recovered. There was a, an 8,500 euro receipt for a bed uh, recovered. So, um, there was a lot of money here um, mm. going on. And it shows you that, that the level of, of money that they were being made available to them and what they were using this money for. And why would somebody go to Turkey for a hair transplant? Would that be unusual? Well, Turkey, it's it's cheaper, um, mm-hmm. so it is. Um, it's out of the way. No one would know them there. A lot of people go to Turkey as well, you know, for um, get, getting some dental work done. So that's what what the um, investigators uncovered, that he had, had been to Turkey and had, had spent this money just to, to get his hair fixed. Okay, uh, but subsequent to that, uh, he came under attack, uh, uh, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, uh, and he's in hospital. He's in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, uh, and you're reporting this morning uh, that he's under armed guard there. Yes, he still remains under uh, protection there. I mean, this is someone who was shot six times, someone who remains under um, a serious death threat. He had been to Dublin uh, to recuperate uh, for the injuries he sustained. He's been left in in a wheelchair, but um, at the moment, uh, we understand they're trying to get him a a suitable place for him to to live, um, a flat that can be uh, easily adapted for someone in in a wheelchair, so he, he has to stay. In, in the hospital and because of the threat against him, because of the, the ongoing feud that his associates are involved in and because of the intention of his enemies to target him, you know, the guards have to have a, a presence there to, to stop this from happening in a public place. Okay, well we'll leave people to read more in today's Irish Sun and thank you for joining us uh, with uh, that story that you have exclusively in the Sun this morning that's uh, Stephen Breen who's crime editor for the Sun now let's go back to some more of your comments Marie, you have uh, some more calls there I have indeed, just sticking with Brexit for the moment Anthony text us and he says from the very outset of this Brexit vote in the UK it has has always intrigued me why Cameron was branded a fool simply because he gave the British people a chance to have the democratic say. Since when is that such an awful thing Michael and wouldn't it be interesting to have such a vote here? And he says that he was listening to your interview with Mairead McGuinness, the MEP on Wednesday and she says he says it's not hard to see why she would be all in favour of the EU since she draws a considerable salary and has done for years from that institution indirectly paid by ourselves. It is overhead such as this and the uncontrolled migration into Europe that Britain wished to address. Okay, all right. Well, I'm not sure it's as simple as that. I've a feeling Mairead McGuinness uh, would uh, be well able to uh, get a, a job and a decent salary, whether it's as a politician here or uh, whatever it is, uh, if it wasn't for the European Parliament. On your interview in relation mm. to smoking, Michael, mm. Mary says she's an ex-smoker mm-hmm. who smoked 40 a day and is now using a vapour. It costs €8 Euro per week. Oh, OK. And she says mm. it's mm. certainly not the same as the cost of cigarettes. Mm. Well, my apologies then. Uh, yeah, I was mistaken there. Marie says giving up smoking mm. causes a lot of psychological problems to the person who's trying to give them up. 
it is a very difficult thing to do, but the HSC, she says, has a fantastic helpline hmm. uh, for those who are trying to give up. Okay. So that's her thoughts on it. And then just to go to Paddy, we were discussing yesterday uh, cycling and that law being scrapped about mm. the overtaking and leaving the distance. And Paddy was just mentioning that he's been driving all his life and he just wanted to phone in and he says, thank God I've never had an accident, uh, but I've had plenty of scares because of other people on the road, mm. not his fault. And he says that in relation to cyclists, that he f- finds when there's a large group of cyclists on the road that there's such a long queue behind and there's always the temptation for people to maybe overtake when they shouldn't be because they're behind, you know, that there's Mm. a long Mm. delay. And he feels that there should be no more than six cyclists allowed to cycle together, if you like, and they should be two abreast. And he thinks that there should be a gap that allows motorists to overtake safely. Mm. He also mentioned that now at the moment, uh, particularly at this time of year, you see a lot of people, he finds, walking on the wrong side of the road, walkers out walking, especially now everybody's getting fit and all that type Mm. of thing. And he says... Many don't wear the high-vis vest and they don't realise that they can't be seen and that's a huge problem. He says when you're a driver and there's a car coming towards you and maybe they don't dim their lights very easily, you can be blinded for a couple of seconds and you may not see a person on the road. Yeah. Well, if you, sorry, go on. Go on, yeah. And I just, I just wanted mm. to say that I was actually on the road last night coming in the Termofecken Road, came across a cyclist on the road in black, Michael. Mm. In black, on yeah. the road cycling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you will see it. And I suppose the thing to do is uh, to keep in mind uh, that people are a danger to themselves, and that perhaps uh, you uh, watch out for them and keep them safe. If you are walking, of course, you should walk on the right-hand side of the road so that you're looking at the traffic that's coming at you, so that if uh, they're a bit too yes. close, you can step in and get out of the way. Uh, and uh, if uh, Cyclists are a bother on the road and uh, they're holding you up. Please don't be tempted to do something dangerous. Uh, whilst there are arguments against uh, how cyclists behave on the road, uh, don't be tempted to that's do it, something. And that's the point that Paddy's yeah, yeah, making. Yeah. He says mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. motorists must take blame, so too cyclists mm-hmm. and also walkers, you know, if they're not behaving as mm-hmm. they should be when they're using the roads. Yeah, Nothing wrong with a, a light or a bit of uh, visibility like a high-vis jacket or uh, something similar on a, a bag or something like that, uh, especially on these roads, uh, whilst you think you can see the cars quite clearly, the cars can't see that's you just thing. as easily. All right. Thanks for that, Marie, and uh, everybody who has been in touch with us uh, today. We'll try to come back to some more comments before we finish up today. So if you'd like to add to what's being said, you can ring Marie or Maggie now, who are both taking calls, and our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's hear more about uh, this four-bed respite service in uh, Dundalk uh, with Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael, uh, TD for Louth. Good morning to you and Happy New Year to you. Good morning, Michael. Happy New Year to you. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. You found out uh, from correspondence uh, that you received this week from the HSE that this service is uh, to become available in the middle of January. Uh, Will it have uh, the impact necessary? Well, I believe it will. We've had a number of meetings, and indeed they've been cross-party meetings. Members of all political parties in the county, all TDs have been involved with the community groups, with family support groups, and with the HSE. This has been going on for past a couple of years because we had a problem both north and south in the county in terms of Bower House, which eventually opened in Balbriggan, and this facility, which will open up in Dundalk. And basically, families suffer 
greatly when there, is, there isn't adequate respite or indeed emergency provision available to them uh, when issues might arise that they won't be able to look after a loved one uh, who needs you know a significant amount of care. Mm. So I believe it will it will it will significantly help, and uh, that's the hope of everybody. <clears throat> Obviously, there you know it's not the answer. It's not the complete answer because clearly. Uh, you know, th- there will be an increasing need for facilities like these into the future. So we're just meeting an existing need at the moment and hopefully we need it fully. Uh, it's so very it few beds, four to, beds, pardon. though. I mean, but you believe that will meet the existing need, do you? Well, the quest, that's a very good question. We, we we have three beds at the moment. The Loud have three beds in the moment in Bower House in, in Balbriggan, and that's providing the equivalent of about, I think, about 950 bed nights to people who need them. Uh, so Dundalk, which will have four beds, will probably provide, hopefully, and again, it's a matter for the operators <clears throat> to decide, you know, because you have to match the individual individuals who need the care with the other people who will be there at the same time. The staff have to be familiar and to know uh, as well as possible the people that are coming in. Mm. But it is expected that you would have a throughput, uh, an equivalent of maybe about a thousand bed nights, which will alleviate, uh, go somewhere towards alleviating uh, the needs of the families and of obviously the individuals who need that respite care. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a significant step in the right direction. But not a, a solution in itself, obviously. Well, obviously, clearly, there will always be a need. There's needs, you know, which will always, there are always unmet needs. Uh, so the question is, we've had a number of meetings. Our last one was in, in December. And um, we, we, sorry, it was, it, it was in November, I think it was. So I think it's the date, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the expectation was that, that it would open, it would have opened in October and it didn't. Uh, so this is an answer to, to a parliamentary question I put in, which uh, tells us now what the date is. Mm. And it's very slow in the coming, isn't it? Uh, because, it as you say, this years. has been going many on for a couple of years. Greatly. Yeah, yeah, and, greatly. Yep. you know, some people uh, had that need for respite, and unfortunately they don't have that need anymore because of how time has lapsed, as you say. Uh, the problem has really intensified over the last couple of years, but particularly in, in the last year, it came to national prominence uh, when uh, Jacinta Walsh went on television uh, and spoke about this and uh, there was lots of promises. £10 million was to be made uh, available. Barlow House opened in Balbriggan. But here we are 13 months on uh, and we're getting around to it now in North Louth. Yes, that, that is true. It is a fact. That's absolutely true. Uh, but I just want to say that the Minister Finney McGrath visited personally. He, he, he met with groups and he also visited Barlow House and I would expect that he would visit a new facility in Dundalk as well. Obviously, things have taken longer than they should have. There's no question about that. But I believe they're, they're, you know, that people are happy with this new situation. Clearly, uh, it isn't the answer, I said, to everything, but it is, it is a big step in the right direction. I believe families will benefit greatly. You have uh, parents of, uh, of adults, obviously, parents in some cases in their late 70s and even 80 years of age and they have looked after their loved one all their lives and they're not able to do it anymore and even though you know it's a huge trauma for them even the question of putting them into respite but it's absolutely essential and I know you've had many people on family members who will articulate that need in a very significant way and I think 
they are being listened to and hopefully this will work well I believe I believe it will Okay, well, hopefully that is uh, the case. If we can talk uh, about Brexit now and uh, the Cabinet meeting yesterday uh, to look at at contingency plans in the event of uh, no-deal Brexit. Uh, You've been advising the government about the potential reintroduction of a hard border. Um, Sorry, Michael. Sorry, apologies to the question there. Sorry. I say you've been advising the government on the potential reintroduction of a hard border. I've been advising them, not not, not personally. Uh, sorry, were you not? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, the question of a hard border is something that nobody wants, and and the issue is that it shouldn't it shouldn't proceed, um, and that every effort is being made by this government to ensure that it doesn't happen. Clearly, the European Union and the Irish government, as part of that union, have a clear position on it. Mm. Uh, that we do not want and there must not be and indeed the British government also has the same view the Prime Minister of Britain is very clear that she doesn't want a hard border so uh, the fact is that uh, all of the governments and the European Union concerned do not want a hard border and every step obviously to make that not happen is being taken I believe and that's why obviously it's up to the British Parliament to accept or reject the deal that the British Prime Minister has got uh, but clearly, in the Republic of Ireland here and in Europe, we're uh, on the same. At Edinburgh, we're on the same point of view on it. And, and is that the conclusion and uh, the recommendation that you made to government uh, that because uh, there is no will to see a return of a hard border, that there will not be the return of a hard border? Well, I think the backstop is about is really what it is. Is it's an insurance policy, so. Mm. Uh, obviously, if an agreement can be made, uh, and if it is accepted by the UK, by the British government, UK Parliament, there won't be a need for a for a for a hard border, mm. because the issues will be agreed between all the parties. But in the absence of that agreement. It has been agreed by the British government, the Irish government and the European Union that there will not be a hard border. So that's that's actually the position. Um, So like everybody agrees that there cannot and must not be one. Mm. Uh, But clearly, uh, there's a question of working out a new agreement with through the European Union and the British government to ensure, you know, that that's. That, that everybody is aware and that the, the legislation that is needed or whatever is needed to be passed is passed so that so that everybody both on this island and on, in Europe and in the UK can move on. In peace okay. and, uh, and have you given advice on this uh, to Fine Gael? Have I personally? Yes. I don't know where you got that, Michael. I, I, speak, I speak my mind, but I'm not aware that I've, I've said anything different to any of my colleagues. Um... I mean, I'm very clear that I fully support what the government is doing. I fully support the European Union, and I would hope that, difficult as it is for the British Parliament, that uh, Theresa May will, in fact, you know, succeed in getting her, her deal through, because if she doesn't, they're in, excuse me, they're in a huge dilemma. <coughs> a huge dilemma, indeed. So. Mm. Uh, in October 2016, uh, we spoke to you because... Andy Kenny had appointed you to head up a, a committee uh, to hold discussions on the potential reintrodu- reintroduction of a hard border between the north and south of this island. I think the concern that was that was then, Michael, and as you know, Mr. Kenny has gone from that position. Did you hold those discussions? 
Uh, no, what I did do, Michael, was I held public meetings in Loud, I held them in Cavan, mm. I held them in Sligo, where we talked about, you know, the, the trouble that, that obviously, uh, Brexit deal, sure. and including mm. hard border, what that would actually mean mm. at that time. And that's exactly the same view that is still there. And did uh, you report and advise the government? Report to and advise the, 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 I, your I wrote, party I, to Fine Gael? Uh, well, I did, of course. I, I gave the Taoiseach of the day and the Kenny, I gave him my report. Yes, I did indeed. I did indeed, yes, yeah. Um, and uh, I was happy to do that. And then when the new Taoiseach came in, he appointed me chair of the Transport Committee. So I'm still very much interested and concerned about as a border TD mm. about the North-South issues, absolutely. And, and that ended, when, when Leo Radker uh, took over from Enda Kenny, that ended your role as the chair of that Brexit committee? Well, the, the Brexit committee was gone then at that stage, but myself and Alan Farrell, a uh, Dáil deputy for mm. not too far from Dublin, both of us were then appointed chairman of Dáil committee, so our roles actually changed at that time, so there hasn't been... There hasn't been a, a Brexit committee as such in Fine Gael since then. Mm. But what has happened is that... Because Alan Farrell was to visit Louth uh, and to hear people's concerns uh, about Brexit, uh, you were to hold discussions on the reintroduction or the potential reintro- re- reintroduction of a hard border. Uh, and yeah, uh, and as a committee, yourself and Ar- Alan Farrell were to report to Fine Gael uh, and undoubtedly advise Fine Gael... Uh, uh, but Michael, that's, I did all that. I has all has that, that report been published? Uh, I don't know whether it's been published or not, but certainly it's incorporated in... Well, the, what is the potential for the reintroduction of a hard border? Michael, I'm not clear what you're saying here at all. I mean, I, I've made it very clear to you my position on Brexit. I've made it very clear that the, that the task I was given by the former leader was carried out in full. I've made it clear to you that I wrote a report on, on what I thought should or should not happen. Uh, but can I you tell us what was in that report? No, pardon? Can you tell us no, what was in Michael, that? Nothing, Michael, other than... It was a very short report, was it? Well, Michael, it was a report I'll give it to you, basically, is that we need we need to make sure that the relationships between North and South should be as close as possible. I recommended that we should I- encourage uh, meetings with unionists of all shades and, and opinion, mm. including the DUP, I pointed out that the DUP wouldn't meet with me in that capacity, and I pointed out that it would be very, very important that we should make and continue to keep our contacts up with all of the people in the North, Sinn Féin, the SCLP, the DUP, the Official Unionist Party and the Alliance. I met with uh, the leadership of the Alliance Party. I met with the leadership of the SDLP. I met with the Official Unionist Party, but as I said earlier, Mm. on... uh, the DUP declined to meet with me, and that was that was then, and obviously clearly. And those meetings, know, in the context of uh, the position, Brexit, yes, uh, yeah. in the in the context of the position you held as the I chair of Brexit, this committee yeah. on Brexit, uh, yeah. and what was your conclusion, uh, and what potential should, is there? That we should continue to keep up our contacts. But but in terms of the specific task you were given uh, to look at the potential reintroduction of a, a border, what potential is there in your view? Well, there's none. There mustn't be, and there can't be. Uh, that's why we must have. That's why we must have. Uh, even a soft Brexit is a significant economic problem to our country. Even that is, in the, and it'll be. It'll cost businesses a lot of money. Uh, but clearly, a hard border is absolutely unacceptable. 
and that's why that's why we have the Brexit. The, but the is it a potential? Pardon, Michael. Is, is it a potential? Well, I mean, it's a matter. It, it clearly, if Britain doesn't accept the deal that they've been mm. offered from the European Union, if they don't accept that, uh, then God knows what's going to happen, other than absolute and total chaos in the United Kingdom. Uh, the Parliament, there seems to be no majority in the British House of Parliament for any point of view, pro or anti-Brexit. They're neither in nor out, they're neither halfway up the hill nor halfway down it. And it's a hugely difficult time uh, for both Ireland, North and South, and obviously clearly the United Kingdom. And every single possible effort that we can make as a government or as members of parliament to improve relationships is hugely critical at this time. And I think that is the top priority of this government. And I've no doubt, clearly, obviously, Britain, uh, you know, they have to make up their mind. They're going to have their vote and mm. then they're going to have, you know, you if they're going to leave. So, so, so the answer is unknown, is it? Well, Michael, if I could look into crystal ball, I would. Well, but, but that's what I I'm asking you. I mean, you were, you were asked to look into the crystal ball, uh, and well, your advice to the, go- the, the, the government the is you don't, you don't have it. The is gone. About <laughs> <laughs> crystal balls. Right. And was it Leo Varadkar who said, put, a, put an end to this nonsense? Well, uh, no, Leo didn't say put an end to this nonsense oh. at all. Leo said, well done on your hard work. And, <laughs> okay. uh, I'd like to do this further uh, job for him, and I'm happy to do it, Michael. And should he, should he ring me and ask me to do further work, I'm more than delighted to do it, because I'm totally committed, absolutely, mm. uh, to the best possible relationships between Britain and Ireland and North and South, and I would be very happy to take on any task that it would be given in that regard. Okay, I have no well, issue. We better no not jam up our line in case there's an important call on the way. <laughs> <laughs> we leave it there for the Thank moment. You, Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Finnegal TD for Louth, Ferguson out. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Europe-wide rules uh, for the registration and certification of drones have uh, been agreed according to the Irish Aviation Authority and uh, probably to the pleasure of most people listening to us uh, this morning. Let's talk uh, about this with independent MEP Marion Harkin. Good morning to you, Marion, and uh, thanks for joining us. I'm not sure about a year ago, but two years ago, I think a lot of us probably wouldn't have known what a, a drone is, and most of us are acutely aware of what they are and I think probably a lot of people are very annoyed by them a lot of the time and there's a lot more of them now of course than would have been the case a year or two years ago there's uh, a third more than would have been the case a year ago over 11,000 of them in the country Uh, and if anybody wasn't aware of what a a drone was uh, before Christmas uh, they'd have become acutely aware of it because of the problems at Gatwick Indeed and uh Good morning. Good morning to you, and happy new year to you, by the way. Yes. Thank you, Michael, and happy new year to you. I hope 2019 brings good times and good things for you and everybody in LMFM. And to you and yours, yes. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Yes, uh, as you said, two years ago, most people wouldn't have known what a a drone was or is, but certainly since the um, event events at Gatwick Airport. Um, people are very aware now of what they are and I suppose one of the issues around Gatwick is that there there's still a great deal of uncertainty I mean well certainly any reports I've read mm. 
indicate that they're still investigating. They're not sure what happened. Uh, and um, I know that there was a meeting uh, where defence chiefs, uh, police officials, um, the transport secretary, Chris Grayling, etc., uh, met to look at plans to deal with the threat of drones to vital infrastructure. And airports in the UK are now looking at spending millions and millions of pounds on installing military-grade anti-drone equipment. And I have no doubt that we'll have to look at doing the same thing. But I think it's the uncertainty. They don't still know exactly what happened, who is well down the line, but even what at this stage is an issue. And that's very concerning because when you think of um, Dublin Airport, for example, you know, I don't know how many flights go in and out every day, but for somebody who uses it uh, every week, twice a week, it's a very busy airport. Yeah, I think one of the busiest in Europe. Uh, and what happened at Gatwick was mad, maddening undoubtedly for people who couldn't get home for Christmas and all of that sort of thing or had their travel plans disrupted. Uh, but the fact that they were able to do this and how, as many people were saying to me at least, you're going to see it repeated. It's going to happen all over the world until something is done to stop this. That's, that seems certainly to be a real danger because not only have you the possibility of this happening inadvertently uh, that people don't know or something goes wrong but equally you have the real possibility that it can be used deliberately for many different reasons so yes people are concerned from a personal perspective Michael and this mm. is only just my own view mm. I've always had real concerns about the whole issue of, of privacy um, uh, as far as drones are concerned, the fact that they can be equipped with cameras, mm. that you have absolutely no idea where they are, what they're doing. And in fact, again, just, you know, having conversations with people around this, that there is real potential for them to be used from the perspective of committing crime. Mm. Because, for example, if you attach um, let's say heat sensors, etc., to a drone, they can actually tell you if you know human beings are around, etc., and whether it is um, you know something is protected, etc., and perhaps it might be an opportunity uh, for those uh, for people who are interested in committing a crime, etc. So there's a whole load. Yeah of issues here uh, that ordinary people will be very concerned with. And ordinary people are very concerned with aviation safety. Mm. Most people at some point or another uh, fly during the year. Many people fly to work. I mean, I'm among that group, but many, many others do as well. Mm. So the idea that there is the possibility, we're not talking here about just being late, being delayed, not making mm. your journey. Uh, it has the potential to cause a catastrophic accident. So, uh, but we're still well behind the curve on that, Michael, even with the new uh, proposed EU legislation. Mm. And they're talking about where and when you can fly uh, these drones. That's right. And as of now, um, anything... Uh, over 150 kilograms uh, is uh, regulated under general European aviation rules. Mm. But anything less 
is regulated under national rules. And uh, the EU were trying to ensure that we had clear and consistent laws for the use of drones. Um, everything from noise emissions, I mean, stuff you wouldn't even think about unless it sort of concerned you, uh, you know, to, as I said, even environmental protection, privacy, data protection as well. Mm. But it, as with, you know, new technology, Michael, and it's, it's coming at us hard and fast in many different areas, it presents, you know, huge challenges uh, for legislators to try to ensure that the proper legislation is in place. But I mean, to me, the big one here, Michael, is who's going to enforce this legislation? Well, there's a lot of catch-up to do. There's no doubt about it. And like anything else, I suppose, uh, there's different grades of uh, these machines and you can buy one for €30, Euro, which will probably be more typical of what you would get a, a child to play with and they can cost up to as much as €8,000 and they're probably the type of ones that you're talking about that burglars might use to take a look in your window to see if you're at home without having to enter your property or with heat sensors on them uh, to see if there's people on that property for that matter, before they come in and take all of your worldly possessions. Uh, and then there's all of these other concerns uh, in terms of international aviation and security and the risks that can be posed. But why can we not simply identify what these uh, or who these machines belong to? I mean, why was it that this thing was able to cause so much disruption at Gatwick without somebody saying, well, that belongs to Marion Hargan or Michael Reid? Absolutely. And I think that's where we have to go, because if they still cannot identify what or who caused um, this mayhem at Gatwick, and as I said, this was delayed flights, uh, this was huge inconvenience Mm. for people, but imagine if if anything worse had happened. Um, And uh, that seems to be a real possibility. That's why those thousands of flights Mm. Uh, were grounded. Um, so it's 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 a much bigger issue than uh, just saying that anything under the, the new uh, legislation, which won't come into effect until later this year, because I've spoken or my office has spoken to the Irish Aviation Authority as well. Uh, but the new rules mean that anything less than 200 and, sorry, anything uh, greater than 250 grams, mm. which is very light, uh, will have to be, um, the, the person who uses it will have to be licensed or have authorization. But unless, Michael, on every single drone, there is some way of knowing who owns it, mm. unless every single drone has some sort of a, a unique chip or well, that's whatever. It. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing having a license. Do you need the license to buy it? And if you buy it, will the products be linked to your license so that you can be identified? Absolutely. Mm. And a license mm. also is about how something is used. Mm. So you've got the question of identifying the, the owner. Secondly, about how it's used. Thirdly, uh, who is going to enforce that? Mm. Uh, have we the resources to do that? And I mean, again, if you if you buy a drone, uh, selling it on, etc. Mm. I mean, it's a massive issue. And I think we were aware that certainly legislation was needed, uh, uh, but 
the implications of it have really only been brought home in in recent times. And, and the European um, Aviation Safety Agency, mm-hmm. um, they have quite strong powers uh, in this area. Uh, and I have no doubt um, when we are back next week mm. in Brussels that, and perhaps even already, that they're looking very carefully at what's there because while the new legislation, um, you know, which, as I said, won't be in place until later this year, um, deals with things like uh, noise and emissions mm. and uh, safety and security, etc. Um, the What we've been speaking about, you know, an individual identifier uh, tying the, the drone to a person uh, the enforcement of it, all of that is not in place and certainly will have to be looked at. And, and it just shows, it, it, Michael, mm-hmm. how difficult it is for people who are making the law to, to catch up with and never mind get ahead of. Even um, at that, though, I mean, they're, they're, they're talking about uh, stopping you from flying it over large crowds if it was a, a musical yeah. festival or over a military area or over a prison or within five kilometres, I think it is, of a, an airport, that sort of thing. Uh, and we know at Gatwick they wouldn't shoot it down because they were concerned about what would happen if they did. But if one is flying outside of my window and I'm concerned about what they're intending to do, should I shoot it down or would I be in trouble? That's exactly it, um, Michael. And if something was outside my window or your window, we'd be annoyed about it because we wouldn't know what the intention was. And one way or the other, whatever the intention is, Mm. we, most people, I think, don't want it. Now, the the problem here is that drones, you know, have potential from the point of view of of new types of jobs, etc. But it's it's like everything. There's pluses and minuses. And just as I said, from a personal perspective, I have always felt that the minuses significantly outweigh the pluses on this. Because, you know, when I talk about privacy and you talk about mm. privacy, n- nobody pays much attention until... It's at their own window or their mother rings them and they say, it's outside my window or I've Mm. seen this thing or what is it or what is it doing? Um, And the potential is there for, as you say, I I think you gave a figure of 11,000. What's to stop there being 111,000? Yeah, well, I mean, there's probably more than that now because of uh, the amount of people who would have got them for Christmas presents and they'll be available cheaply in the sales. Uh, That's a point that the Irish Aviation Authority is making and that uh, the growth in uh, the popularity is such uh, that there's uh, a third more than would have been the case a year ago. So a year from now, God knows, uh, that figure of 11,000 could have doubled. Uh, But it certainly sets many challenges and uh, I'm sure, as you say, uh, there'll be much more more on this in the coming months. We have to leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed for joining thank us, you, as always, this morning. Marion Harkin, Independent MEP. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Serbia has become uh, the latest country to introduce a ban on fur farming. Ireland should be the next country. This is according to the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Chief Executive Officer of the ISPCA, Dr Andrew Kelly, joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, There's three fur farms in this country, is there? Yes, there's currently three fur farms, and I, I should start by saying that you know fur is a luxury fashion item that uh, is completely unnecessary, of course. And if people really want to wear something that looks like fur, there are suitable synthetic alternatives out there. So there's really no need for fur farming. But yeah, there, there's three fur farms left in Ireland, and the, the ISPC is calling for an immediate ban on animal welfare and ethical grounds um, because the, the, the um, intensive farms that keep mink keep them in very small cages uh, and they really cannot provide for the welfare of the animals. Mm. Um, and uh, you mentioned at the top of your piece there that Serbia became the latest country to ban for farming uh, from the 1st of January. Uh, and in 2018, uh, Luxembourg became the 14th EU member state. So Ireland is, is lagging behind in this in this area, uh, and it's time that a ban was introduced. And so, also, um, we, um, with our colleagues at uh, an, another organisation called Respect for Animals, conducted a Red Sea poll, uh, mm-hmm. and 80% of the Irish public would like to see a ban introduced with, with, with them without any further delay. Okay, but I, I suppose there are people, whether you understand it or I understand it, which I, I don't, who want a, a mink coat. Uh, but it, mm. it, 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 if you ban the farming of mink to produce mink as a, a material, do you also ban the importa- importation of uh, the final product? Well, essentially, that, that might happen further down the line. But Ireland at the moment, um, it's, all the fur produced in Ireland is actually exported and two of the fur farms are actually owned by international companies. They're not actually owned mm. by anybody in Ireland. And, and just before Christmas, Veterinary Ireland, which is the professional body which represents veterinary surgeons in Ireland, they uh, um, published their position statement on fur farming, uh, and they concluded that uh, fur farming cannot protect the welfare of animals under any circumstances, and they also called for an immediate ban. So, so we've got the veterinary profession calling for a ban, the Irish public want to see a ban, and there's plenty of scientific evidence uh, to show that um, fur farming's cool. But you can buy um, mink coats in Dublin, can't you? You can indeed, yes. Yeah. I think there's, there's yeah, So not, 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 all, not all of the Irish public want to ban on them. Somebody's buying well, them. Well, no, but it's a very small minority, yeah. of course, mm-hmm. that, can, that, mm-hmm. that do want to wear fur uh, and that can afford to wear fur. It is a, a luxury fashion item that uh, really needs to be uh, consigned to the history books. But um, the other thing, of course, is that the, uh, the, the methods for killing them on farm is mm. actually very inhumane as well. Uh, you know, they're gassed. Uh, they're, they're essentially taken from their cages. And one of the reasons why they're kept in very small cages is that they're essentially arm's length so that there's no uh, difficulty in catching them. Uh, and at this time of year, or, or just after their first molt at the end, at the end of November, um, essentially that's when the killing time is, uh, and up to 150,000 mink are taken out of those cages, put in boxes and, and gassed with carbon monoxide. So and is like, that the difference in, in your mind, Andrew, between wearing a, a woolly jumper or a pair of leather shoes? 
Well, it's a, it is a different thing. You know, they, they, there is less cruelty involved in some other uh, industries, leather industry and uh, wool, but that's another issue completely. Um, uh, uh, but what we are calling for is an immediate ban on fur farming. And, you know, there has been a global change. You know, we're starting to see many of the top fashion houses also rejecting fur. Recently, Versace, Gucci, Armani, Hugo Boss and others, I think there's 969 real retailers, have actually signed a pledge on the Fur Free uh, Alliance uh, page, of which we're a member, uh, pledging not to sell fur in their collections in the future. And I, I think the evidence is, is quite clear that uh, uh, mink kept in cages are, are suffer serious injuries. Uh, they suffer from stereotypic behaviour, which is caused by stress. And, and there's big, big differences between farming domesticated animals and wild animals. And mink are essentially a wild animal. Uh, and there are huge differences between wild mink and, and what farmed mink mm. can do. So um, we're all con- uh, conscious of the five freedom um, uh, um, uh, concept which uh, allows for animals to show uh, normal behaviour. Of course wild animals kept in a very small cage measuring uh, 90 centimetres by 30 centimetres by 40 centimetres cannot express normal behaviour. Th- these are um, semi-aquatic mammals. Well, that, that, that's a view but there's nothing well, wrong well, it's, it's legally with what's being done. I mean these are, are, are uh, it is a regulated industry isn't it? Well it, well, it is a regulated industry and they operate under license mm. um, but we uh, believe that the, the welfare of the animals cannot and the scientific evidence supports this and the veterinary profession supports this that the, the welfare of the animals can't be protected in these uh, in these farms so what does the government think of this well, the, the government d- d- did a review in 2011 uh, and they allowed fur farming to continue under licence. We believe a lot has changed in that seven or eight years uh, since then. Uh, we believe there should be another review uh, and we're calling on the government to look at the scientific evidence, listen to the veterinary profession and listen to the public. Uh, it's high time that the fur farming industry was banned in Ireland and it was consigned to the history books. All right, we'll leave it there and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Dr Andrew Kelly, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the ISPCA, brings our programme to its conclusion today, indeed, for this week. Before we go, as always, uh, thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Marie in the control tower. I'm Michael, hope you have a a lovely weekend, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.